We've been involved in a series of studies that we began on the New Testament church by looking at Matthew 16 and in verse 18, and so there we appeal again, where Jesus made the promise, upon this rock I will build my church. And thus this would be called the Lord's church, or referred to as the Lord's church, because Jesus said it was my church. Since Jesus is divine, that makes this a divine institution. Very important something worthy of our attention. We've repeatedly pointed out that the promise was made while the Old Testament was in force, but not fulfilled to the New Testament became effective. And that Jesus pointed out it is not built upon Old Testament principles, but it is founded upon the New Testament as its guide. And so this would be the New Testament church. And so a few weeks ago, we began a series on the New Testament church. Just quickly, what have we seen? We've talked about the standard and discipline of the New Testament church being the New Testament itself. We've talked about the origin of the church, how it began in A.D. 33 in Jerusalem. We've talked about the nature of the church, that it is the body of Christ, it is the kingdom of God, the bride of Christ, those who are saved, etc. We've talked about the organization of the church. There's no universal organization, but locally there are elders and deacons and saints. And then in our last study, we've talked about the work of the church how we determine that, what is the scripture work, and some things that would be unscriptural. Tonight, let's continue that study by talking about its worship. The New Testament church, what about its worship? Worship is defined as simply being or doing homage toward. And so when we kiss the hand toward or do homage toward God, we are worshiping our God. Let's talk about different kinds of worship, and by that I simply want to suggest the Bible mentions some false worship, and I'm not, my focal point is not to go in detail on those, but I just want to get before you the fact the Bible mentions vain worship, for in vain they do worship me. So it's possible for our worship to be vain or empty. The Bible also mentions ignorant worship concerning the the unknown God that is mentioned in Acts chapter 17, whom you ignorantly worship. So there is such a thing as ignorant worship. The Bible also talks about will worship in Colossians 2. That is where man makes up his own plan and does according as he wishes. So there is such a thing as false worship. But the Bible talks about true worship. And we'll give attention to this passage a little bit later. But the true worshipers worship God in spirit and in truth. And so we just saw three things there. We see the right object, that is God. We see the right manner in spirit. And we see the right standard in truth. Here's what I'm learning from that, that not all worship is acceptable to God. Just because someone offers worship, even to the one true and living God, and labels it as worship, this is my attempt to do homage to God, doesn't mean God is accepting of that. And so therefore, it's important to raise the question, just how did the church in the New Testament worship? Our purpose tonight is not to get an exhaustive study of worship and how we can improve our worship, and how we can make our worship better. But more we're looking at the standard, uh, from the standpoint of the New Testament church, what kind of worship did that church offer? So that we might compare that with what other churches may do, we're looking for simply some kind of standard, or we're looking for some kind of guideline. What is this worship that the New Testament church offered? What is the criteria for that? What is the worship the New Testament church offered? What is the characteristics? Of that. So let's begin our study tonight by talking about the object of worship. What is the object of our worship? 
Well, let's go to John chapter 4. I said we'd come back to this passage a little bit later, so here we go. In John chapter 4, verses 23 and 24, when Jesus was in the discussion with the woman of Samaria, the text said, but the hour is coming, Jesus is speaking, and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship him. God is a spirit, and they that worship him shall worship him in spirit and in truth. And so we see that the object of our worship obviously is God. More about that in a second. Let's turn to Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 10. Matthew chapter 4 and in verse 10, Jesus made this statement that he said, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord God, and him only shall you serve. God is the only one worthy of worship. No other one is worthy of worship. No other being is worthy of worship. There is one God in Ephesians chapter 4 and in verse 6. Let's go over to the book of Isaiah, if you will. Isaiah, the 45th division, and look at verse 5. Isaiah 45 and in verse 5, God said, I am the Lord and there is no other. There is no other God beside me. And so I learned from that, there is no one that is worthy of worship other than God himself. No man should receive worship. Doesn't mean no man ever received worship, but no man should receive worship. Peter refused it in Acts chapter 10. You remember when Cornelius bowed down before him, he said, stand up for my, I myself am also a man. So Peter refused worship, contrary to what the Catholics may teach. He refused worship. He was not worthy of worship. Even angels refused worship. You remember two occasions in the book of Revelation, chapter 19 and 10 and 22 and in verse 9, when John would have fallen down and worshiped the angel, the angel refused that, saying, worship God. And so the object of our worship is God Almighty. Titles of reverence were reserved only for God. Let's go to Psalm 111. Psalm 111 and in verse 9. Now this is interesting because... There are some churches, as we're trying to talk about the New Testament church in comparison to those that have been created by man, there are a number of churches where, the, where some preacher or some official will wear a title and as a title of reverence that he is worthy of respect and worthy of some kind of being revered somehow. In Psalm 119 in verse 11, the King James says, holy and reverend, the New King James will say awesome, Holy and reverend is his name. In other words, God's name is the one that's, whose name is to be revered. And we see the same principle over in Matthew chapter 23, where Jesus rebukes the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23 for wearing some of the titles that they would wear. He said, do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, even Christ. And do not let anyone uh, on earth, uh, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, who is he is in heaven. So titles of reverence were reserved for God. They were not to be given to man. Now I know the object of our worship, but let's also talk about the manner of our worship. Our worship is to be in spirit. Let's go back to John 4 and verse 24. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We'll say more about the truth in just a moment. But let's define what it means to worship God in spirit. I want to start with the second passage first, and then we'll come back to Romans 2. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 12 and in verse 28. In Hebrews 12, 28, our worship is to be from the heart, is to be with reverence, 
We're to have godly fears, not just going through a ritual. We'll say more about the ritual in a moment. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us have grace by which we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. I recognize that passage is not just talking about our acts of worship, but our whole service to God. But when we render service to God, it is to be with reverence, the right attitude, and with godly fear, with respect toward God. That would address the idea of the manner or it being from, indeed, from the heart. Let's go to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2 would serve somewhat as a commentary on John chapter 4. Remember, our worship is to be in spirit as well as in truth. What does it mean to be in spirit? Well, in Romans 2, he's talking about the one who is a true Jew. Let's see what he says about a true Jew. Watch for that phrase, in spirit. He said, for he is not a Jew which is one outwardly, nor is it circumcision which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one, notice this word, inwardly, and that circumcision that is of the heart, now notice the phrase, in the spirit, not of the letter. That is one who is merely outwardly a Jew, is not a true Jew. The one who is a true Jew who is one inwardly, that is in the spirit. In other words, from the heart. So the idea of worshiping God in spirit means I'm worshiping God from the heart as well as going through the right actions. I'm not just going through the motions, that's coming from the heart. Now notice in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you say, what does that mean? What does, how does that apply to me? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians 11 beginning at verse 27. Our thoughts need to be the proper thoughts. This is illustrated with the Lord's Supper. As we partake of the Lord's Supper, we can partake of the elements, we can eat of the bread, and we can drink of the cup. And we can do so without even thinking of the meaning or maybe thinking of something else or having the wrong thoughts going on. But the thoughts need to be the right thoughts. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 beginning at verse 27. Therefore whoever eats the, this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. It's possible to take of it in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let each one examine himself and so let him eat the bread and drink the cup. What are, you, what are you talking about, Paul? Here's what I'm talking about. For here, verse 29, who, he who eats the, and drinks in an unworthy manner, he eats and drinks judgment to himself. Now notice this, not discerning the Lord's body. What's his point? His point is, in partaking of the Lord's Supper, our focus and our thoughts are to be the right kind of thoughts. That is, we're to be thinking on the body of the Lord, the sacrifice that he made, the blood that he shed. So it's not just going through the outward motion. Our worship is to be from the heart, having the proper thoughts. Now this is interesting, that in Matthew chapter 15, which quotes from Isaiah 29. So let's go over to Matthew chapter 15. In Matthew chapter 15, what I'm learning from that is we're not merely to go through a ritual. Worship that is merely a ritual is not acceptable to God. That is, I go through the motions, I, I, I sing the songs. We, we pray the words of the prayer that we've memorized. Uh, we, we partake of the elements. We sing the words, whatever the case may be. Notice, for these people draw nigh to me with their mouth, and they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. They say the right things, they're doing the right things, but their heart's in the wrong place. Their thoughts aren't in the right place. For in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. What's interesting is that is a quotation from Isaiah 29, 13, and I cite the New American Standard Version, a command which, of things which they learn by rote. In other words, just going through the motions. Here is something they learn just by going through the ritual. 
So what I'm learning from that is that our worship is not to be merely a ritual I go through. I sang the words of the song. I didn't think about a word, what it meant. Didn't even know what we sung. I, I, I took of the elements, but I didn't even think about the meaning of that. That's going through the ritual. Our worship is to be in the right spirit. But furthermore, it is to be in truth. Let's go to John 4, 24 again. God is a spirit and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, that simply means according to his word, because Jesus said, thy word is truth, John 17 and verse 17. So it's according to the revelation of God, according to the word of God. In other words, we worship as God directs and as God authorizes. Now, let's give some example of that. Let's go back to the book of Genesis, if you will. Go back to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis 4, verses 3 and 4, and we notice the case of Cain and Abel, where one makes an offering before God, they offer worship before God, and yet one was not acceptable before God. Let's read what the text has to say. In the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of the flock and of their fat, and the Lord respected Abel and his offering. But he did not respect Cain and his offering, and Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. Well, upon a cursory reading of that, we kind of may be puzzled if we didn't know the story about why did God accept one and not the other? Both are making an attempt to worship God. Both are making an attempt to honor God. Both are bringing offerings before God. God accepted one and God didn't accept the other. Well, Hebrews 11:4 gives me some insight. By faith, Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain. That means that Cain's sacrifice was not by faith. What does that mean? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word. One offered his offering according to the word of God and the other did not follow the direction or the authority of God. Let me give you another example of that. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 10. Leviticus chapter 10. Now we're beginning to see, though this is not the New Testament period, I well recognize Cain and Abel, Nadab and Abihu are not in the New Testament period. But may I remind you as you're turning to Leviticus chapter 10, that this illustrates why worship, how we worship is important because that which is not authorized, God does not accept. Let's look at Leviticus chapter 10. Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and put incense on it and offered profane fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded. Now let's stop there and we'll come back to verse 2. Here again are two brothers. They're making an attempt to worship God. They're making an attempt to serve God. They're making an offering before God. They did something that God had not commanded them. It's not that God had forbidden, don't ever do this. But here's something God had not commanded them. See a problem with that? Look at verse 2. So fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they died before the Lord. The International translates that they offered a profane fire, that is, an unauthorized fire before God. And therefore God condemned them for that. Our worship must be in spirit, but it must also be in truth. We are not at liberty to worship as we wish. In other words, we cannot decide for ourselves, I think I want to worship God, but here's how I want to do that. It is not in man that walketh to direct his own footsteps, Jeremiah 10, 23 says. There is a way, the proverb writer says, that seems right, but the ends thereof are the ways of death. Just because it seems good and seems right doesn't mean it's acceptable before God. Now, I know the object of thy worship. I know the manner of our worship. Let's talk about the assembly for worship. Is there a need for an assembly? There is a concept of individualism. Individualism says that I worship my, in my own, on my own without any assembly. 
That is, I'll worship, I believe in God, I'll worship. This is true of people that are non-Christians. Know little about the Bible. They know there is a one true and living God. They have a smattering knowledge of the scriptures maybe, and, this, and that's about all they've got. But I want to worship God in my way. I don't need organized religion. I don't need to go to church. I'll worship God in my own way and in my own manner. Some of our own brethren have bought into that. So they forsake the assembling and they worship God on their own. I'll just worship God on my own. I don't need an assembly, don't need to be with the local church. I once talked to a brother who said, you know, I don't need to come on Wednesday night. I'll just, I'll just do my own Bible study on Wednesday night. And I said, watch it now, because what you're going to do is you're going to start doing that on Sunday night. And sure enough, he starts doing that on Sunday night. And I said, now watch it now, because what you're next going to do is you're going to say, I don't need to go on Sunday morning. And then you're going to go from that to say there's no such thing as a local church. Wasn't long until he begins asking me, where does the Bible talk about a local church? You see, I can worship God on my own. I don't need a local church. I don't need to assemble with anybody. I'll just stay at home and I'll worship as I wish. Like God directs, but I'll do that in my own home. I don't need to assemble with a local church. That's the concept of individualism. Let's see what the Bible has to say. In the New Testament, the church that you read about in the pages of the New Testament, they assembled for worship. Let's get some passages that will help us with that. So if I want to be a part of the New Testament church, the one the Lord said I will build, I want to look for the church where there is an assembly of the saints of God. In Acts chapter 20 and verse 7, when the disciples came together upon the first day of the week, that is an assembly. An assembly is when all come together in one place. And so here they assembled on the first day of the week, the text says. They assembled to break bread on the first day of the week, and Paul preached unto them. More about that passage a little bit later. Let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Now we're going to pay attention to 1 Corinthians 11 a little more in just a moment. But I want us just to scatter, go through and find some passages, verses scattered, like verse 17, 18, 20, and 33. That mentioned coming together, mentioning an assembly. All I'm trying to argue is the fact that they assembled and they assembled for worship. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This is in the context of the abuse of the Lord's Supper. He said, um, now when giving these instructions, I do not praise you since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. They had an assembly. Look at verse 18. First of all, when you come together as a church, I hear their divisions among you, and I partly believe. They were coming together and assembling. Look at verse 20. For even when you come together in one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. It should be, but that's not what they were doing. It made a common meal out of that. Drop down to verse 33 now. Same text, same passage. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. You should come together and you should eat and you should wait for one another. All I'm trying to get you to see is the church assembled for worship. There was an assembly. Now, the fact that there were some regulations for the assembly suggests something of the importance of the assembly. So let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14 now. This ill recognizes in the day of spiritual gifts. I well recognize that. But in the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 14, there were regulations for the assembly. We're not going through every one of these, but I just want to get before you the, the flavor. Notice at verse, uh, starting at verse 23, he said, If the whole church come together in one place and all speak in tongues... And there come in one of the uninformed or unbelievers, will they not say that you're all out of your mind? So if you're doing your assembly in the days of spiritual gifts, and there were the speaking in tongues, and someone comes in and they don't understand what's going on, they're not going to understand, not benefit from that, and that's out of place. But let's drop down to verse 26 now. He said, when you come together, each one of you has a psalm and has a tongue or has a revelation. 
Let all things be done for edification. So one of the regulations is in the assembly, things are to be edifying. Look at verse 27. If there one has a tongue, let it be by, uh, by two at the most by three and let uh, and each in turn and let one interpret. If there's no interpreter, let, let uh, him keep silent. Notice furthermore, uh, verse two, let, let there be two or three prophets speak. In other words, not all speak at the same time. That's what I want you to see. Not all to speak at the same time. They were to speak in turn. There's not to be confusion in the assembly. Let's go a little bit further. Look at verse 34 and 35. <clears throat> 34 and 35, let your women keep silent in the churches for it is not permitted to them to speak. In other words, women were not to address the assembly. So there was regulation with reference to that. <clears throat> Let's drop down to verse 40. I'm just trying to list some idea of regulation. Let all things be done decently and in order. God is not the author of confusion. So what I'm getting us to see is that there are regulations for the assembly. We are to assemble for worship, but there are some regulations that guide and govern the assembly, some things that are appropriate, some things that are not. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 25, we're not to forsake the assembling. It was important enough in that context do not forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is. As the manner of some is, is perhaps one of the more important phrases in that. There's something going on in the context of the book of Hebrews where some were forsaking the assembly. What was causing that? Either the text gives us no hint at all, or the context of the book suggests persecution is what was causing that. And he says, don't forsake the assembly. That tells me something of the importance of the assembling for worship in Hebrews chapter 10. So I know the object of our worship, the manner of our worship, the assembly for worship. Let's talk about the day of our worship. The first day of the week was the day the church assembled for worship. Go back to Acts 20 and verse 7. Upon the first day of the week when the disciples came together to break bread, Paul preached unto them. More about that principle in just a second. I want to put another passage with that. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16. Verses 1 and 2. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I've given order to the churches of Galatia, so you must do. Now verse 2. On the first day of the week, if you have the New American Standard, it'll say upon the first day of every week. Let each one of you lay something aside, storing up as he may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now the actions that are taking place in those two texts, we'll look at in just a moment. But I'm just getting you to see that they assembled on the first day of the week for worship. Now, what was the significance of the first day of the week? Well, let's go to Luke chapter 24. Why not just pick any day that you might want to get together for worship? Maybe a Tuesday would be better. Maybe a Thursday would be better for worship. And let's make that our day of worship instead of the first day of the week. The significance of the first day was that was the day the Lord was raised from the dead. There are other things that took place. The church was established on the first day of the week, which was the day of Pentecost. But I want you to notice at verse 1 of Luke chapter 24, on the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they and certain other women with them came to the tomb to bring spices that they, which they had prepared. And when they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, they went in and did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. In other words, the tomb was empty. So the tomb was found empty on the first day of the week. That's the day the Lord was raised from the dead. That's the significance of that day. The first day is not the Christian Sabbath. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. Let's go to Matthew chapter 28. And notice something in verse 1. Matthew 28 and verse 1. In fact, I'm going to read from the English Standard. I like the wording of it. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse 1. Same principle is found in the King James, King, uh, New King James, etc. American Standard. 
quite often, I mention this because quite often you hear some refer to the first day of the week, this is the Christian Sabbath. We had the Sabbath, but now the first day of the week is the Christian Sabbath. So we worship on the Sabbath just like they did, but this is the Christian Sabbath. Our Sunday is our Christian Sabbath. That's not the Sabbath at all. Let's notice in Matthew 28 in verse 1, I'm reading from the English Standard. Now, after the Sabbath, after the Sabbath, not on the Sabbath, but after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week. After the Sabbath, as it began to dawn toward the first day of the week. So the first day of the week was one day, the Sabbath was another. This is not the Christian Sabbath. We're not worshiping on the Sabbath. It is a misnomer to describe it as the Christian Sabbath. There are two items that are limited by the authority of Christ to the first day of the week, and those are the only day. The only time we ever find the observance of the Lord's Supper is this example in Acts 20 and verse 7. We find commands to observe it, like 1 Corinthians 11, but the day is not mentioned. We find the institution of the Lord's Supper, but the day is not mentioned. The only passage that mentions the day in which they observe the Lord's Supper is this example, Acts 20 and verse 7, and the only day mentioned was the first day of the week. That's the only day that's authorized. The same thing is true when it comes to the matter of the giving in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. They were to give upon the first day of the week. The only pa- there are other passages that talk about contribution, talks about giving, but the day is not mentioned. The only day mentioned is the first day of the week. That's the only day that's authorized. So we cannot give on any other first day. So when I find a church that they're taking up a contribution on Saturday night, that's not the New Testament church. When I find a church that's not observing the Lord's Supper on the first day, that's not the New Testament church, or they're observing it on another day, on the Sabbath, or maybe they're observing it on the Tuesday, or maybe it's a Wednesday, or maybe it's a Friday, then they are not the New Testament church. That's the day of worship. But let us go further. Let us close by looking at some items of worship. What are the items? What is it that we do in worship? What is it that we offer to God? What what acts do we do in worship to God? What is it that God has authorized? Well, let's start with the matter of the Lord's Supper. Let's go back to Matthew chapter 26. This is where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper. Matthew chapter 26, beginning at verse 26. And as they were eating... The Passover, that is. Jesus took bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to the disciples. And here's what he said. He said, take eat, this is my body. And he took the cup and he gave thanks and he gave it to them and said, drink from it, all of you. For this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. Let's add to that verse 29. But I say to you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine from now until the day in which I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. And so here's where Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and he took the bread and said, this is my body. He took the cup and said, this is my blood. This represents my body. This represents the blood and you're to do this in remembrance of me. There's the purpose for that. Now the example that we've already noted, let's go back to Acts 20 and verse 7. The only example that we have of the observance of the Lord's Supper is in Acts 20 and verse 7 that they came together upon the first day of the week to break bread. They came together for the purpose and they assembled for the purpose of breaking bread, the eating of the Lord's Supper. And they did that on the first day of the week. And Paul preached to them. That's every first day of the week. That is, the Lord's Supper is to be observed every first day. And you say, well, it didn't say every first day. Well, that is implied just like Exodus 20 and verse 8, to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. 
That text did not say every Sabbath day, but it was implied that every time the Sabbath came around, they were to observe the Sabbath. Same thing is true with reference to the first day of the week, every time it comes around. So when I find a church that they don't do this every first day, but they do it every, every quarter, or they do it annually, that's not the church you read about in the pages of the New Testament. Here's another item of worship, and that is of giving. 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2, again, mentions it's on the first day of the week. In fact, it mentions every first day of the week. We are to give as we have been prospered, 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2. We haven't paid any attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, chapter 9, and 1 Corinthians 16 are parallel. They are dealing with the same identical contribution. So that contribution that's on the first day of the week, 2 Corinthians 9 and in verse 7 says that we should give cheerfully. Let each one give as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. The verse before that, verse 6, had said that one should, who sows sparingly shall also reap sparingly, and one who sows bountifully shall also reap bountifully. In other words, we should give liberally or bountifully. Here's another item of worship, and that is singing. Now, we have some instruction as to what we're to do. We don't sing just anything we want, but the Bible mentions spiritual songs. Let's go to Ephesians 5, though we know these passages well. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5 and in verse 19. Speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and notice this, spiritual songs. Psalms obviously are spiritual. Hymns are spiritual. And then here are spiritual songs. And so our songs are to be spiritual songs. More about that in a moment. The singing is to be from the heart. That is not just memorizing words and going through and saying words. It gives us the idea to be from the heart, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart. That it hears the heart strings that are to be pulled and to be plucked or to be twanged, and that's the heart strings. And that is we're to sing from the heart. In so doing, not only are we singing praises unto God, but we're teaching and admonishing one another, speaking to yourselves in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So we sing to each other, we're edifying, we're encouraging one another, as well as singing praises unto God in our worship. No other kind of music is authorized. So when I'm looking for the New Testament church, and I'm talking about the church you read about in the New Testament, I'm looking for a church that has this kind of music, no other kind of music. In other words, no instrumental music. Why? Because there's no Bible authority. I'm looking for a church that doesn't have humming or whistling. Some churches have tried that. Maybe we don't have instrumental music, but let's, let's, let's hum the, the uh, hymn. Let's, let's all hum Amazing Grace. Or maybe somebody wants to whistle Amazing Grace. That's not authorized because that's not singing. Furthermore, secular songs are out of place because they're not the spiritual songs. So why don't we just have a song like God Bless America? Or why don't we have the Star Spangled Banner and sing that or any other kind of secular song because it's not the spiritual song that is mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5. But let's talk about praying as another element of worship. The first church prayed. Notice in Acts chapter 2, I don't mean that they prayed individually, but they came together and they prayed. In Acts chapter 2, this was the first day of the week, by the way, when the church was organized or the church instituted. And I want you to notice in verse 42, we recognize the elements mentioned here are acts of worship that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, and the breaking of bread, which we take to be the Lord's Supper, and in prayers. So here, the day the church was instituted, they're gathered together and they're praying as well as observing the Lord's Supper. And so the first church prayed. They prayed in an assembly with the leader. Did they pray individually? They did. Did they sometimes pray in small groups? Acts 12, they sure did. 
but did they pray in an assembly? Well, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. In giving those regulations on the first day of the week, or um, let me back up to, uh, for the assembly, not the first day of the week, but for the assembly, look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 15, and 16. This is in the day of spiritual gifts. And he talks about praying in the spirit and, and praying with the understanding. And I will sing with the spirit and I will sing with the understanding. And that doesn't just have the idea that I, I want to understand what I'm doing, but I want to pray so that I'm understood. And I want to sing so that I'm understood. Now, you know that's what he's talking about. Look at verse 16. Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how will he who occupies the place of the uninformed say amen at the giving of things? Which gives the idea that one is leading and others are following in the assembly. Same principle of 1 Timothy 2 and verse 8. I would that men pray everywhere. Anner, that's males only. I thought women are to pray. Well, women are to pray, but not in that passage. It's talking about male leadership. Men leading in prayer and others following in prayer. That happened in the assembly. We see again that example in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. Here's something else that takes place in our assembly, and that is some teaching that goes on. Paul preached in the worship assembly. They came together upon the first day of the week to break bread. They've assembled for that purpose. And Paul used that occasion to preach and instruct them. Now, why does he instruct them? Well, because the word builds us up. The, the, the part of the purpose of our, our, uh, our assembly is to be edified and built up. Well, Paul commended the elders of the church at Ephesus to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up. So one of the things that builds us up is the revelation of the will of God, revelation of God's word, the teaching. Now, I want to suggest that we have the Lord's Supper and giving and singing and praying and teaching. There are no other acts of worship that are authorized. If so, where is the passage? So if some church comes along and says, well, we, we want to count beads as an act of worship. None said, well, no, we, we want to have instrumental music as an act of worship. So when I said, we'll handle snakes as an act of worship, and then you just begin to add other acts of worship that they want, the question is, where is that authorized? There are no other acts that are authorized in the pages of the New Testament. We're talking about the New Testament church. We talked about its work, its organization. We'll talk about some other things in future studies. Tonight, our focus has been on its worship, the worship that it offers. And so when I look around, I'm looking for a church that has the worship you read about in the pages of the New Testament, whose object is the God of heaven. We're not revering man, but we're revering God. That we worship according to truth and worship from the heart. That there is an assembly for worship. There is not individualism. I'm looking for a church that worships on the day the Lord would have us to, and limits the activities that are to be limited to that day. And furthermore, they're engaged in the items of worship, the acts of worship that are revealed in the pages of the New Testament. Are you a part of the New Testament church? That is the church you read about in the New Testament. If you haven't been obedient to the gospel, you're not in the New Testament church. If you haven't been baptized for the remission of sins, you're not in the New Testament church. If you're not in Christ, you're not in the New Testament church. Would you become a Christian tonight? Would you obey the gospel tonight? Would you become a part of the New Testament church? Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith in Christ, and be buried in the waters of baptism? And that same baptism puts you into the body of Christ. If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and sing?